Welcome to Dive In With Seaside, where we rethink the topic of environmentalism one conversation at a time. I'm Lane, and I'm a junior at Ohio University, and here at Seaside, I'm the project manager of content generation on the marketing team. I'm Nikita, and I'm currently a high school senior in Dallas, Texas, and I'm a marketing and public relations intern, and we're going to be your co-hosts. So dive in with us and don't miss this opportunity to learn more about what it means to create change. This episode, Dr. Britt Crow Miller, a senior lecturer in the Departments of Environmental Conservation and Geosciences at UMass Amherst, is joining us to speak more about what environmental education looks like on a collegiate level. How are you doing, Dr. Crow Miller? I'm doing very well. I'm enjoying the New England summer, even with some of the humidity, but everything's good over here. How are you? I'm good. I just moved back to school. So getting settled in again, it's really nice. Nikita, how are you doing? Oh, I'm good. I can't say the same about enjoying the weather. I live <laughs> in Dallas. Oh my gosh. It, isn't it? It's been like really hot there, right? It's, it's always really hot every summer. And actually this summer, it's been decently less hot. We haven't had as many days go into the hundreds. So relatively, it's been a good summer for us. <laughs> Well, that's good, I guess. I'm glad everyone's doing well and enjoying this last stretch of summer. Dr. Brickrow Miller, would you like to speak a little bit about your background and some of the work that you've done throughout your career? Sure. So let's see. I am a geographer by training, an environmental geographer or human geographer focused on the ways that human decisions and power dynamics and human systems come to affect the natural environments around us and then how we are interconnected um, with those systems. I have spent a lot of time doing research related to water politics in East Asia, in China in particular, although that kind of feels like Half, of, half a lifetime ago at this point, I've more recently transitioned into sustainability and environmental education work at multiple levels. So obviously at the university level, I've been teaching in that space for a long time, but I also have a nonprofit called City Wild, which is focused on creating environmental education opportunities for kids and families, including in communities that have been historically marginalized. And that's been a really fun side venture for me. And it's allowed me to involve a lot of the students that I work with at the undergraduate and graduate level in doing hands-on environmental education. I'm from New York originally. I've lived all over the place. I've lived in Los Angeles, Portland, Beijing. I was at Portland State University, which is a really interesting urban-based, community-focused, sustainability-heavy institution in Portland, Oregon. And I was at Arizona State University, which as I know you two both know, Lane and Nikita is one of the leaders in sustainability education at the university level around the world, actually. And now I'm at UMass Amherst. And I came here last summer in the middle of the pandemic. So I'm still kind of getting my feet under me here, but it's wonderful to be back on the East Coast and at this great institution. We're so thrilled to have you here today as our special guest on the podcast. But before we jump into the thick of it, we're just going to start with our word of the day. And today's word, and it's really more of a concept than a word, but it's environmental education. And I'm not going to just give the 
exact definition, but what I think most people don't really know about it is that there are five key tenets that environmental education is supposed to bring. The EPA defines those as having an awareness and sensitivity to the environment, having knowledge of it, having concern for it, having the skills to identify those issues and ultimately resolve them, and finally to participate somehow in those efforts. I was going to say, we go over that exact uh, terminology in my environmental education class that I teach to undergrad and grad students. So I love that you've included that for listeners. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much for bringing that into the word of the day, Nikita. It's really interesting. But yeah, with that, we can go ahead and get started with the questions. So what I first want to start off with is what differentiates teaching undergraduate and graduate students in environmentalism versus teaching like school age children or young adults in high school? And do the same basic priorities exist? Yeah, that's an interesting question. For me, having had the opportunity to to teach and work on environmental education issues with people of all different ages, all the way down to infants and toddlers up to older folks, I would say the basics really are the same. No matter what age, it's about giving people the tools to see the world around them in a different way. I would say it's about helping people or guiding them in a way to open their eyes and their senses. There's there's so much around us, no matter where we are. And I feel like a lot of people have kind of lost the ability to see that. So you start at a fundamental level, let's say you're working with college students One of the things that I do is I have them keep a nature journal and they go outside and they just observe whatever is happening around them. Sometimes there are different prompts like focus on trees or try to identify a tree. And you do this over several weeks or several months. Gradually, people start coming to know the names of the plants in their yard or around their apartment building or the names of a few different birds. It's like a whole other world is opened up to them that's been there all along. It's existed all along, but we haven't been using our senses to engage with that world. And so opening up your eyes, opening your senses, getting curious. So curiosity for me, again, is really fundamental to environmental education at every level, you know, encouraging people to ask questions Um, about the world around them. And then from there, that feeds into this recognition of our interconnection and interdependency with the the non-human world around us, right? We don't exist independently from ecological systems, just as ecological systems at this point in human history do not exist independently from human influence. Even the most remote ecosystem without people living immediately around it is going to be affected by human behavior and human decisions in some way, right? If we're thinking about something like global climate change, I think learning humility and responsibility is very important. That really speaks to this idea of sustainability. You can't just take whatever you want from the non-human world, whether you're thinking about like harvesting timber or food crops or whatever it is, you have to take care of these systems if you want them to keep giving back to you. It's not just about you. 
as a human as well, right? So moving away from that fundamentally anthropocentric viewpoint or that human-centered viewpoint where we are the most important thing and recognizing ecosystem health is perhaps important on its own, right? And these other species, even if they're spiders or birds, are important as well and have the right to thrive as much as possible. So I think those are basic at any level. And so I would go about teaching them in a slightly different way, depending upon the age group that I'm working with or the experience level that I'm working with. But I think a lot of us are missing those basics And then after that, there are so many specific topics and themes to explore related to environmentalism and environmental education and sustainability from climate science to water resource management, sustainable agricultural production, things like that, or or more human and cultural side of things. But to me, again, those foundational concepts and, and skills are really important. Thank you so much for sharing. And I really agree with you about the humility and being able to recognize that and taking it in. And I also really love that you have your students keep a notebook and like become familiar with the world around them, because it's true. That's something that I actually started doing this summer. And it really has made a huge difference. Sometimes I'll write it down, but then also there's an app called iNaturalist by National Geographic. And it has made me so much more aware of the things that people just tend to walk past. But instead, I always think like, what is that? And I'll just pull out my phone and see what it is. Doing stuff like that is very important when you're stepping into environmentalism, even if you're already involved in it, just becoming more familiar with the world around you. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I love that you brought up iNaturalist. So iNaturalist is one of my favorites, and that's something that I encourage my students to use. It's free to download. You just keep it on your phone. And when you see a plant or an animal or an insect that you're not familiar with, you snap a picture of it. And most of the time identify it um, correctly, or at least give you a, a good idea of what it might be. That curiosity lane is what you're talking about, that even being able to ask that question, to stop and notice something and say, what is that? We need to keep that alive, right? Like so many people don't even don't even stop. We're distracted by our phones in other ways, or we're just thinking about everything going on around us. But taking that minute to stop and be curious about what's around you is really important. So that's great that you're doing that too. And a lot of the time we emphasize that with younger groups. I know in my community, we have this biodiversity education center, which does really, really cool projects. And one thing they do is they like to have kids go out on nature trails and walks using iNaturalist, but it's new. It hasn't been there for all the kids to There are teenagers who haven't been there. There are all these adults who have never been there. So there's this entire really untapped section of the population that's still, maybe they're not understanding the importance of that symbiosis really between the environment and all of our creations, what we are doing in our everyday lives. So I think it's really important to emphasize that the same basic priorities exist, whether you're talking to that population, whether you're talking to younger children, it's all the same at the end of the day. Yeah, Um, absolutely. Another question we wanted to ask was, what are some of the facilities and opportunities that UMass Amherst or really even your nonprofit provide to students in these fields? Yeah, so, you know, UMass has, it's a large institution, as I'm sure you know, there are so many options for students who are thinking about exploring coursework or careers in environmentalism or environmentally aligned fields. So for undergrads, there are broad programs like environmental science, 
There's a natural resource conservation major. We have a geography program and geography in the U.S. is lesser known than many other fields, I would say, which isn't true in, in European countries or in parts of Canada and um, South America. But because we don't have K-12 geography education, students get to college and they don't know what geography is. But at, in our geography program, we have concentrations in environmental geography and sustainability. We have a concentration in climate change and society. So that's one really great option for students thinking about exploring the interconnected human and ecological dimensions of sustainability challenges. We have some more specific focus programs for people who know exactly what they're interested in. So we have a community forest management major. There's a sustainable community development major. There's sustainable food and farming. And that's an area that UMass really excels in as a university with an extension program. UMass also has something that's really interesting. It's called uh, BDIC, which is an acronym for bachelor's degree in individual concentration. So students can come in and they can basically design their own major. So for example, I have worked with a student for this past year who is a BDIC major and their work is related to sustainability and experimental filmmaking. So they're able to take lots of classes related to sustainability and environmental issues, but then think about how to communicate some of those key concepts using experimental film techniques. So there are some really cool opportunities for students looking to explore some of these topics. On the School of Earth and Sustainability website for UMass, which is umass.edu backslash SES, you can look through some of these majors. There's also a tool for exploring undergraduate majors. I think it asks you some questions and then gives you some suggestions. So there are really a lot of options. We've got great faculty, tons of opportunities for hands-on experience, which I think is really important. Students are really hungry for that, right? It's not just about sitting in a classroom and, and listening to someone talk. That model of learning is somewhat outdated at this point. It's about getting out there and having hands-on experiences and learning from everyone in the classroom. As a professor, I learn something from my students every time we meet. We're part of this learning community and we learn from each other. We have a number of graduate programs in similar fields to what I've mentioned for undergrads. I am the program director for a professional master's program called the Master's in Sustainability Science program, which is a really unique program. It's a year long. Some people take a little bit longer, but you pick a concentration, right? It could be sustainable food and agriculture. It could be urban sustainability. It could be environmental quality. And you can take classes from all across campus, from all different departments and faculty doing very high level research or community engagement. And the program ends with what we call a practicum experience, which is a 150 hour internship. So the students go out and find an opportunity to learn in a hands-on way in whatever concentration they've gone into. So they're, they're getting that kind of professional exposure and learning experience that you might not get in other programs. And we also really focus on career preparation, career readiness, things like how to have a strong resume and cover letter and to understand what your network is, like who your sustainability 
professional peers are and how to connect with them and learn about opportunities and that kind of thing. That's a really great program. And then, as I mentioned, there are lots of research-based graduate programs as well that we offer all across the university. So lots of good options at UMass. How does the the selectivity, I assume that the programs are just like anybody who wants to get in, get in there's, there's a little bit of a qualification you have to be able to pass in that sense, but how does that selectivity of getting in affect the way that faculty members structure their programs? Does it change based on having more selective programs or having less selective programs? I would encourage students thinking about applying to graduate school in these fields to look at what kinds of classes are offered? Are those things that are interesting to you? What kinds of careers are people graduating from that program going into? And then sometimes you'll see a list of minimum qualifications for a program. Sometimes you'll see a minimum GPA. Programs like to see people who have demonstrated an interest in that field. So even if your undergraduate major is in English or dance or something not directly related to sustainability or an environmental field, if you're able to show that you have some experience, maybe it's volunteer experience, or maybe you had uh, a job for a couple of months that exposed you to some of these ideas that you're really excited about, that will work to your benefit. Different programs have different criteria or different things that they look for when they're admitting students. I would say that from a faculty perspective, we design the programs that we we think will serve the students best and set them up to know what they need to know and go out into the world to do meaningful work related to sustainability. Being able to show that you're going to be able to perform at that level and that you're thinking about some of these issues, that you're enthusiastic, that you work hard. All of those things are important. And I would encourage students thinking about applying to graduate programs to reach out to faculty and and learn more about programs or have a conversation with them and just make that personal connection that can make a difference as well. Yeah, I know personally, I just was accepted into Ohio University's Environmental Studies program. And my major, thank you, but my point is that my major has nothing to do with environmentalism, Um, but because I'm working at Seaside, they knew that I had an interest. So yeah, definitely doing things like that. It's very helpful. So how can students, kind of going off of that, how can students who may not necessarily be majoring in sustainability or environmental studies learn about this field at UMass specifically? Are there organizations they can be in or things like that? Yeah, that's a great question. You definitely don't have to major in one of these fields to take classes that help you explore some of these topics. UMass has a lot of one credit courses available to freshmen specifically that let them dabble in lots of different areas. So I know freshmen who who might come in thinking that they're going to major in in one thing, and then they'll take a one credit course on art and climate change or something like that. And it will completely change what their plans are. But, you know, a lot of the courses are open to people uh, regardless of their major. So I teach a class called environmental geography and sustainability 
I get students from a dozen different majors. So you can definitely dabble in different courses to explore some of these ideas. There are lots of students doing super cool work related to sustainability on campus, lots of smaller student organizations. I know of a couple of student-led reading groups where they get together once a week and, and they'll read something related to sustainability or climate change more specifically. That's a very important topic right now that a lot of people are thinking about. There are opportunities for working with different professors in research positions related to sustainability around campus. So I would encourage students to explore the, the UMass website, the School of Earth and Sustainability website, talk to their peers, you know, understand what those opportunities are on campus and go from there. Awesome. So previously you mentioned that you used to work at Arizona State University, which had one of the pioneering programs in sustainability. Has the field of sustainability grown significantly since then? And if so, how has that taken place? Yeah, so I worked at Arizona State University for a number of years. I also worked there after I finished my undergraduate degree as an intern some like 15 years ago at this point. And so it's been interesting to see how things have changed in that time period, but they did offer the first, what I understand to be the first graduate degrees in sustainability in the U S and the first students graduated from those programs just over 10 years ago now. So the programs have been around for a long time. There are master's programs or you can get a PhD in sustainability and interdisciplinarity is really key with that. So there's a school of sustainability and students in that school take classes from all over campus, but also have a very interdisciplinary faculty. So in the school of sustainability, there are people with degrees in everything you could possibly imagine. It's not just people working on environmental science issues. There are social scientists, there are modelers, there are economists, there are people who would traditionally fit into more of like a humanities track. And the idea is that in order to address some of these very complex sustainability related challenges, we have to have as many viewpoints as possible brought to bear on those topics. If you're only looking at an issue with a group of economists, the types of solutions or types of options for addressing that issue are going to be narrow. They're just going to think about economic dimensions. Or if you only have natural scientists working on a topic, you're maybe going to miss some of those important cultural dimensions that come into play or the economic side of things. So having an interdisciplinary experience for the students to train them in that way so that when they go out into the world to do their work, they're looking for that diversity and perspective as well is really important. I think since degree programs like those at ASU came about more than a decade ago, we're seeing more and more programs like that develop. So we have the School of Earth and Sustainability at UMass, which I believe is the first school of that nature on the East Coast of the US. You know, We have our sustainability science master's program that I mentioned. You are starting to see sustainability major options at 
at the undergraduate level at some universities. I know Arizona State is one of them has a sustainability general education requirement. So when students come in as undergrads, they're expected to, you know, tick certain boxes to have a foundational knowledge of what we as a society consider to be important. So you probably have to take a science class, you probably have to take a literature class, a history class, things like that. And some universities are saying at this point, given everything that's happening in the world, we think it's important that every single student that graduates from our institution has a foundational knowledge of sustainability and what that means. That is a core area that we need our graduates to be educated in when they graduate and go out into the world. So I think that is very important. And I hope that we start to see more of that. We are seeing more degree programs, but if every single student graduating from major American universities was required to have that basic level understanding of sustainability, I think that could be very powerful. Absolutely. And one question I had was now the idea of corporate sustainability and and what these larger businesses and corporations can do in their part to help mitigate, you know, climate change and find solutions somehow is becoming more and more popular. Has that spurred the growth of sustainability as a requirement, as a major at the undergraduate level? Has that had any impact on the growth of the field? That's an interesting question. I think you're right. Sustainability has become this buzzword and corporations want to show consumers that they are talking the talk, basically. And some of them are putting substance behind their sustainability efforts, of course. But I think students are increasingly recognizing that it is an area employers are looking to see if you have experience in. You hear about the growth of green jobs and and green careers. So I think students are picking up on that and realizing like this is kind of the future. I am setting myself up for lots of career opportunities if I'm exploring this field as well. So a lot of universities and colleges are also offering certificates in sustainability. So that's not quite offering a degree or a a dedicated program, but you can have a business major and get a certificate in sustainability. So then you can show corporate employers that you're at least thinking about these kinds of issues. And I will say that sustainability in the U.S., as a discourse on the whole has been criticized by many for being overly focused on economic sustainability, right? So when we talk about sustainability, we often are thinking about an economic dimension, an environmental dimension, and an equity dimension, right? They call that the three E's. And it is often true that it is the economic sustainability piece that is focused, especially at the expense of the equity piece of things. So hopefully corporations that are working to enhance their sustainability efforts are not just looking at the bottom line in terms of of profitability and and, um, that kind of thing, but balancing out these other dimensions and concerns as well. And like you said, it's important for corporations or really any future employer to see that someone has this basic understanding and sustainability and how it's having a huge impact in the world we live in right now. It's so meaningful at this point in time. We've previously spoken on this podcast about the importance of diversity and environmental justice, and we've talked about how we can build that understanding in students from a younger age 
But what work is being done at the collegiate level of education to promote more inclusivity, especially within environmental education? Yeah, that's such an important issue. I'm glad you asked this question, Nikita. We know that environmental issues are never just environmental issues. They affect human communities. There is always a human dimension. And of course, we know that the negative impacts of everything from climate change to localized air pollution and and water quality issues tend to be felt disproportionately by communities that are already marginalized. So Black communities, Indigenous communities, communities of color, immigrants, women, and so on. I would say that environmental injustice, right, what this movement of environmental justice is working to address is not an environmental problem at its root. It is the very long and deeply entrenched history of racism and white supremacy in America being expressed in environmental terms or being manifested in our human managed environments. So environmental injustice, I would say, is a symptom of this larger unjust system that permeates into everything. Those same structures of systemic racism permeate our educational systems at every level in all kinds of complicated ways. So environmental fields in higher education, if you look at the data, they are overwhelmingly white across the board from students all the way up to faculty. What that means is that there is very significant work that needs to be done. We need to be intentional about making sure that our programs are not only inclusive of students from all kinds of communities and backgrounds and life experiences. It's not just about being better at inclusive recruiting. A lot of times you'll hear people say, we just need to do a better job of recruiting more diverse students. But I think part of the problem is that sustainability related programs need to do a better job of actively and directly acknowledging the fraught history of these fields and then working to remake them, right? So environmentalism in the U.S. has a complex history when it comes to race in particular. You look at some of these lauded figures in American environmentalism, like John Muir, and you read more deeply into their work and you realize that they weren't talking about nature for everyone or access to forests and so-called wild spaces for everyone. They were talking about privileged white men and they were talking about displacing indigenous communities and all kinds of, all kinds of things that are not addressed head on in these fields. I've had students in the past who will take uh, a class with me and we talk about environmental racism and they'll say, I'm a senior, I majored in environmental science and I have never been introduced to these concepts before. That is a big problem. Again, it's not just about recruiting, it's about making sure that these fields are teaching the full picture of things and actively remaking some of these fields. And I think this remaking requires diverse perspectives and experiences. It requires diverse leadership and informed and culturally competent approaches 
to everything from recruitment to how we run our application processes to admissions and dealing with things like implicit bias in admissions processes, funding models and providing more fellowships and reworking our curriculum at every level. I think the good thing is that there is a lot of work being done in these spaces in the last few years that I didn't see happening prior to that at the same level, but it's not this remaking that has to happen. It will take time and it will take work and it's a really important issue. And when you're talking about people not knowing what environmental racism is, it's almost sad to say that I was lucky enough to have learned about it uh, in my sophomore year of high school when I took AP Environmental Science. I had a teacher talk to us about what environmental racism was. And you realize that the problem, it's really a twofold problem. One is that the, it, it's occurring in the first place to these communities with absolutely no reason. They're being targeted against their will and having all these really terrible and harmful health effects for generations to last. And the other side of the problem is that people just don't know it exists, right? There's absolutely little to no media coverage. I think Flint was probably the breakthrough incident. A lot of people saw that as, you know, the exception, but that's really just symptomatic of a larger pattern that's just been going on for so, so long. I think it's really important to hear that there is work being done and that we understand it's not going to happen in one day. It's not this immediate thing, but there needs to be a recognition that there is a problem at these higher levels of education in the first place. And once you get past that hurdle, it, it just becomes so much easier to do the work that needs to be done. So Yeah, absolutely. I think that's great that you had someone in high school who was teaching on those topics. And it's heartening to me to see, I have young kids and last year they were home doing virtual schooling. Their school was not in person. So I, I was like a fly on the wall in the classroom for a kindergartner and a second grader. And the, the level of sophistication at which these teachers are talking about racism and the Black Lives Matter movement and so on with young kids is just amazing. I've been so impressed and heartened because certainly when I was in school, these were not things that were talked about directly um, to kindergartners and second graders. So I'm hopeful that things are changing. And again, environmental injustice, environmental racism, they're not environmental problems. They're related to systemic racism at every single level. And we just see that playing out in environmental terms or socio-environmental terms. So the fix is not environmental, right? The fix is about changing these systems. Are there any initiatives that UMass just within environmental education and just also as a university, are there any initiatives that they have in place to sort of combat this issue? Yeah, I know there's a lot of work happening within programs. I'm in multiple departments and involved with multiple programs at the undergrad and graduate level. And this is a conversation that's happening across the board. There are diversity, equity, justice, and inclusion task forces really putting a lot of time and effort into understanding what the issues are and how they can be addressed in all of those areas that I mentioned from recruiting to um, admissions processes and funding and all of that. It's definitely happening in kind of a decentralized way across the university in specific programs. Students are demanding more 
attention be paid to these issues, which I think is great. And I think it's unfortunate that it falls on them to demand that, you know, but UMass is rising to the call, however late it might be. I'm not saying UMass is rising to this late. I'm suggesting that these problems have been ongoing everywhere for many, many, many decades and centuries even. So it's this historical moment when people are starting to wake up and recognize that that there's work to be done. I think that's a great way to describe it too, is this historical moment. It's really marking a turning point for us as humans and, and our understanding of the environment and also our understanding of each other, our own interconnectedness within mm-hmm. these large communities on how we treat each other. So just wanted to, again, say thank you so much for being here with us. Um, it's been incredibly fascinating to speak with you. I, I'm a high school senior. I don't get to speak to people like you very often. This is a wonderful opportunity to, you know, gain a better perspective on diversity and, you know, inclusiveness at this higher level, but also just what does it mean to educate students like this? It's very different than what I'm used to, but at the same time, it's the same basic priorities you need to keep in place. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for having me. It's been wonderful to to speak with both of you today. And, and it's so great that you're putting together this podcast series to get people thinking more about these important issues. So it, it gives me hope for the future to, to see this work being done by people like you two and, and others. So thank you. Well, thank you so much for coming on and you know answering all of our questions and just taking time out of your day. This is it for today, but thank you for diving in with us and learning more about environmental education. Rethinking environmentalism can be done, but it must happen one step at a time. And we hope this is one of those steps. See you next episode.